Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fireside Poems. I'm Dr. J. Today's episode is another excerpt from Longfellow's long narrative poem, The Courtship of Miles Standish. Today's excerpt tells the story of the first fatal encounter between Standish and the native Massachusetts people. Longfellow follows his historical source, the Chronicles of the Pilgrim Fathers, fairly closely in some aspects, particularly in the bravado and taunting by the Indians that lead up to the murder. Both the declaration by Watawamat about his two knives, one with the face of a woman and the other with the face of a man, and the declaration by Pexawat that his knife by and by will see and eat, but speak not, are taken nearly verbatim from the Pilgrim Chronicles. Longfellow departs from the Chronicles, though, in his depiction of Standish losing his cool just before he strikes. The difference is the difference between cold-blooded murder and hot-blooded murder. The Chronicles, which we must take as truer to the case, present the former as it declares the goal of the expedition from the beginning to be the killing of Pexawad and Watawama, whereas Longfellow goes out of his way to present Standish as striking in anger. But for what reason? What is Longfellow's thinking about this historical episode and about America's history between Native peoples and Europeans? Before considering this further, let's listen to Longfellow's retelling of the event. From The Courtship of Miles Standish by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow After a three days' march, he came to an Indian encampment pitched on the edge of a meadow between the sea and forest, women at work by the tents, and the warriors, horrid with war paint, seated about a fire and smoking and talking together, who, when they saw from afar the sudden approach of the white men, saw the flash of the sun on breastplate and saber and musket, straightway leaped to their feet, and two from among them advancing came to parley with Standish and offer him furs as a present. Friendship was in their looks, but in their hearts there was hatred. Braves of the tribe were these, and brothers gigantic in stature, huge as Goliath of Goth or the terrible Og, king of Bashan. One was Pexuat named, and the other was called Wadawamat. Round their necks were suspended their knives and scabbards of wampum, two-edged, trenchant knives with points as sharp as a needle. Other arms they had none, for they were cunning and crafty. Welcome, English, they said. These words they had learned from the traders touching at times on the coast to barter and chaffer for peltries. Then, in their native tongue, they began to parley with Standish, through his guide and interpreter Habamok, friend of the white man, begging for blankets and knives, but mostly for muskets and powder, kept by the white man, they said, concealed with the plague in his cellars, ready to be let loose and destroy his brother, the red man. But when Standish refused and said he would give them the Bible, suddenly changing their tone, they began to boast and to bluster, then Wadawamad advanced with a stride in front of the other, 
and with a lofty demeanor thus vauntingly spake to the captain. Now Watawamat can see by the fiery eyes of the captain, angry is he in his heart, but the heart of the brave Watawamat is not afraid at the sight. He was not born of a woman, but on a mountain at night from an oak tree riven by lightning. Forth he sprang at a bound with all his weapons about him, shouting, Who is there here to fight with the brave Watawamat? Then he unsheathed his knife and, wetting the blade on his left hand, held it aloft and displayed a woman's face on the handle, saying with bitter expression and look of sinister meaning, I have another at home with the face of a man on the handle. By and by they shall marry, and there will be plenty of children. Then stood Pexuat forth, self-vaunting, insulting Miles Standish, while with his fingers he petted the knife that hung at his bosom, drawing it half from its sheath and plunging it back as he muttered, By and by it shall see, it shall eat, aha, but shall speak not. This is the mighty captain the white men have sent to destroy us. He is a little man. Let him go and work with the women. Meanwhile, Standish had noted the faces and figures of Indians peeping and creeping about from bush to tree in the forest, feigning to look for game with arrows set on their bowstrings, drawing about him still closer and closer the net of their ambush. But undaunted he stood and dissembled and treated them smoothly, so the old chronicles say that were writ in the days of the fathers. But when he heard their defiance, the boast, the taunt, and the insult, all the hot blood of his race, of Sir Hugh and of Thurston de Standish, boiled and beat in his heart and swelled in the veins of his temples. Headlong he leaped at the boaster, and snatching his knife from its scabbard, plunged it into his heart, and reeling backward the savage fell with his face to the sky, and a fiend-like fierceness upon it. Straight there arose from the forest the awful sound of the war whoop, and, like a flurry of snow on the whistling wind of December, swift and sudden and keen came a flight of feathery arrows, then came a cloud of smoke, and out of the cloud came lightning, out of the lightning thunder, and death unseen ran before it. Frightened, the savages fled for shelter and swamp and thicket, hotly pursued and beset. But their sachem, the brave Watawamat, fled not. He was dead. Unswerving and swift had a bullet passed through his brain, and he fell with both hands clutching the green sword seeming in death to hold back from his foe the land of his fathers. When we consider an account such as this, we look not just at the events, but at the way they're told. In accounts of the encounter between those native to what we call the Americas and those who came from Europe and their descendants, those sympathetic to the Europeans will tend to make them the heroes and the natives the villains, not just in what each side does, but in the language that's used in the telling, whereas those sympathizing with the native people will do just the opposite. This passage may well be an example of the former. The native people are called savages, horrid with war paint. They are duplicitous, cunning, and crafty, 
preparing an ambush. There is hatred in their hearts. They are full of boasting and taunting. But what of Standish? He is first and foremost hot-blooded and angry. When he strikes, he strikes in anger at being taunted about his short stature. But Wadawamat has seen correctly that Standish is angry in his heart even before any taunting words are spoken. But angry about what, then? Longfellow, and this he doesn't take from the Chronicles, has made clear in the description leading up to this confrontation that Standish is in fact still angry at what he feels is John Alden's betrayal of their friendship in bungling his marriage proposal to Priscilla Mullins, and no doubt angry too at being taken lightly by Priscilla, a woman after all. And then we look again at Pexelot's taunt that the short-statured Standish should stick with women's work and not attempt the work of men. The most powerful force at work on both sides seems to be a kind of toxic masculinity hardly unique to this historical circumstance. If Longfellow's intent is to make Standish a hero or to mythologize the encounter, he's not doing a very good job of it. War here has more to do with masculinity than with good and evil, right and wrong. Perhaps this is something we should consider more often when we think about war. Valuable as this thought may be, however, doesn't this treatment of the encounter as a turf war between two rival gangs also trivialize an event that had profound and long-lasting consequences, tragic for the Indians? This is where third and fourth looks become valuable. When Pexawat, Wadawamat, and Standish begin as if Standish's visit is for trade, which both sides know is a ruse, Pexawat and Wadawamat ask not just for knives and blankets, but for muskets and powder, kept by the white man, they said, concealed with the plague in his cellars, ready to be let loose and destroy his brother, the red man. They are letting Standish know that they know what's at stake. And when Standish rebuffs them with an offer of the Bible instead, he's letting them know his contempt for their way of life. And even-handed as Longfellow may be in his portrayal of toxic masculinity on both sides, he perhaps tips his hand in the closing lines of the passage. But the brave Watawamot fled not. He was dead. Unswerving and swift had a bullet passed through his brain, and he fell with both hands clutching the green sword, seeming in death to hold back from his foe the land of his fathers. These lines not only state clearly the significance of the encounter, they perhaps too introduce an heroic note after all. Let's listen again. From The Courtship of Miles Standish by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow After a three days' march, he came to an Indian encampment pitched on the edge of a meadow between the sea and the forest, women at work by the tents, and the warriors, horrid with war paint, seated about a fire and smoking and talking together, who, when they saw from afar the sudden approach of the white men, saw the flash of the sun on breastplate and saber and musket, straightway leaped to their feet, and two from among them advancing, came to parley with Standish, 
and offer him furs as a present. Friendship was in their looks, but in their hearts there was hatred. Braves of the tribe were these, and brothers gigantic in stature, huge as Goliath of Gath, or the terrible Og, king of Bashan. One was Pexuat named, and the other was called Wadawamat. Round their necks were suspended their knives in scabbards of wampum, two-edged, trenchant knives with points as sharp as a needle. Other arms had they none, for they were cunning and crafty. Welcome, English, they said. These words they had learned from the traders touching at times on the coast to barter and chaffer for peltries. Then in their native tongue they began to parley with Standish, through his guide and interpreter, Hobbamok, friend of the white man, begging for blankets and knives, but mostly for muskets and powder, kept by the white man, they said, concealed with the plague in his cellars, ready to be let loose and destroy his brother, the red man. But when Standish refused and said he would give them the Bible, suddenly changing their tone, they began to boast and to bluster. Then Wadawamat advanced with a stride in front of the other, and with a lofty demeanor, thus vauntingly spake to the captain. Now Wadawamat can see by the fierce eyes of the captain, angry is he in his heart, but the heart of the brave Wadawamat is not afraid at the sight. He was not born of a woman, but on a mountain at night, from an oak tree riven by lightning. Forth he sprang at a bound with all his weapons about him, shouting, Who is there here to fight with the brave Wadawamat? Then he unsheathed his knife, and, wetting the blade on his left hand, held it aloft and displayed a woman's face on the handle, saying with bitter expression and look of sinister meaning, I have another at home with the face of a man on the handle. By and by they shall marry, and there will be plenty of children. Then stood Pexuat forth, self-vaunting, insulting Miles Standish, while with his fingers he petted the knife that hung at his bosom, drawing it half from its sheath and plunging it back as he muttered, By and by it shall see, it shall eat, aha, but shall speak not. This is the mighty captain the white men have sent to destroy us. He is a little man. Let him go and work with the women. Meanwhile, Standish had noted the faces and figures of Indians peeping and creeping about from bush to tree in the forest, feigning to look for game with arrows set on their bowstrings, drawing about him still closer and closer the net of their ambush. But undaunted he stood, and dissembled and treated them smoothly. So the old chronicles say that were writ in the days of the fathers. But when he heard their defiance, the boast, the taunt, and the insult, all the hot blood of his race, of Sir Hugh and of Thurston de Standish, boiled and beat in his heart and swelled in the veins of his temples. Headlong he leaped at the boaster, and snatching his knife from its scabbard, plunged it into his heart, and, reeling backward, the savage fell with his face to the sky and a fiend-like fierceness upon it. 
Straight there arose from the forest the awful sound of the war whoop, and like a flurry of snow in the whistling wind of December, swift and sudden and keen, came a flight of feathery arrows. Then came a cloud of smoke, and out of the cloud came the lightning, and out of the lightning thunder, and death unseen ran before it. Frightened, the savages fled for shelter in swamp and in thicket, hotly pursued and beset. But their sachem, the brave Wadawamat, fled not. He was dead. Unswerving and swift had a bullet passed through his brain, and he fell with both hands clutching the green sword, seeming in death to hold back from his foe the land of his fathers. The Pilgrim Chronicles that Longfellow used as his source, chronicles written by the pilgrims themselves, record that when Standish set out, he was charged by the leaders of the Plymouth colony to return with the head of Watawamot. Longfellow, in constructing his romance, does not have Standish return directly from this encounter, but the head of Watawamot is sent to the village. Its reception there will be the subject of another episode. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and that you'll join me again next week for another episode of Fireside Poems. If you think others might enjoy Fireside Poems, please let them know about it through your social media so that they might join you and me each week by the Fireside.